0: How's everybody doing this morning? Good? All right, all right, ready to go, okay. So, my name's Sean. Um, it, it's, it's good to be here with you this morning. Um, if, I, if I haven't met you before, um, definitely come, come grab me after. I'd, I'd love to say hey and, and get to know you. Um, if you haven't seen me around a lot, um, it's because I've been helping out a lot with our uh, campus venue, um, helping with technology and, and production and, and just helping to, to make that happen every week. So, um, if you haven't seen me around, that's why either that or I'm hiding out in the back. It's a, it's a great place to be. So, <laughs> um, as you may know, we've been in the process of um, sending people around the country and um soon to be around the world uh, with our, our spring break trips lots of uh, students have, have been going around we've sent um, already a, a group to Houston and a group to Panama City Beach Florida on Friday just to um, to really share the gospel and, and God's love in a tangible way to people who need it. Um, so we're, we're really excited about the prospect to be able to be um, just behind them, um, praying for them, and, and just waiting to see the the good, um, just the good news of, of God's work that they bring back with them in a week. So um, we're excited about that. Um, today, this evening, we're actually going to be sending our, our final group um, off to Guatemala. Um, so that's, that's going to be really cool. We're excited for them to to get to go um, overseas uh, around the world to share God's love to people in a very different culture with very different needs um, than we might be used to. Pastor Brian is actually going with um, with his daughter Allison, and so um, I'm personally really excited to hear what kind of stories are, are going to come back from that, and and just as an opportunity, um, a to to give some staff chance to um, to rest and prepare for that, and, and b because um, we value. Um, just empowering people, or our church values, uh, raising up pastors, you get to hear from me this morning. So hopefully that's a good thing and not a bad thing. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> so we've been in this Exodus series, right, um, exploring the reality that God draws his people out in order to draw them in. The word Exodus literally means drawn out. And it's this story, as we've been seeing, of God drawing his people out of slavery um, In Egypt into his loving leadership and relationship in a new land, a good land that he has promised to give them. Um, So this story, as we've kind of talked about a couple of times, it's just part of this masterful history, this masterful story that God is weaving, um, starting from, from the beginning of time, actually culminating, not here, but in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and continuing to this day. So yes, we're going to start in the very beginning. Buckle up. I hope you brought snacks. I hope you're ready to go. We're, we're going. So God created the world perfect, and he placed humanity in it to enjoy him, to enjoy one another in this creation that he made. Everything was good. However, as, as a lot of us know, what happened is that humanity chose sin um, and selfishness and, and chose to elevate themselves um, as, as ruler over God. Um and what happened from this point is this sent creation and it sent society and really the the trajectory of our world into this tailspin. Um, things were not functioning the way that they were supposed to. But from the beginning, God had a plan to set things right. Um, he chose Abraham, this wandering old nomad, um, and his wife, Sarah, and said, hey, you guys are going to have a kid. They're like, What are you talking about? Not only are you going to have a kid, God continues, but I'm going to make a mighty nation out of you. What? Not only am I going to make a mighty nation out of you, but it's a nation through which all the other nations of the world are going to be blessed. The whole world is going to be blessed through this promise that I'm making to you that I'm going to keep. But, he says on the front side, there's going to be a period of time where your family is going to be in a foreign land, and they're going to be enslaved for four hundred years, not everything is going to be like perfect and exactly the way that you want it. But just just wait. I'm going to keep my promise. I'm going to lead you out with a mighty hand, and I'm going to give you the land that I've promised you. And that is where we find ourselves. So so far, um, we've seen the the slavery and just the outcry of um, the Israelites in Egypt. Uh, we've seen God call Moses, kind of his um, his chosen man, to be this mouthpiece to Pharaoh. We've seen Pharaoh's response. um, Who is the Lord that I should listen to him, says Pharaoh. Uh, We've seen God show his mercy um, and his justice through these ten powerful plagues that that he's um, laid out on Egypt. And we've seen him lead his people out. And that's where we're going to pick up. We're going to pick up with this climactic moment um, in the Exodus story where God is going to make this kind of confusing decision, and we'll get into that in a minute. He's going to make this confusing decision that results in one last decisive showdown between God and Pharaoh. So this, right here, what we're going to talk about, this parting of the Red Sea, is the title match between God and Pharaoh. And what we're going to see is that God's baffling plans lift our eyes off of ourselves and onto God's glory. So God's baffling plans lift our eyes off of ourselves and onto God's glory. So the people, they've left Egypt, they've celebrated the first Passover, um, and now they're following this pillar of cloud by day and this pillar of fire by night, this, this visible, tangible representation of God's presence and his leadership Not only that, they have tons of livestock with them. They have gold and silver and fine clothes and and all of this like treasure and loot that they've gotten from the Egyptians just by asking them. So this is, think about this, this is a triumphant moment. This is a free people, not only a free people, but a a rich people, even a materially rich people. And not only that, but they're being led by God. This This is a big moment for the people of Israel. But then as we pick up in Exodus 14, the Bible says something interesting. We're going to be bouncing back and forth between um, the the scripture and kind of unpacking it. So you can follow along up on the screen um, in your Bible or on the the H2O app. So as we get into Exodus 14, here's here's what we've got. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and and encamp in front of Pi-Hahirath, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel. They're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his armies. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Okay, so what in the world is going on here? The, the, God is leading the people. Everything seems pretty good. They've got loot. They've got uh, livestock. They've got a pillar that they're following. They're no longer slaves. Everything's great. God says, hey, go back the way you came. Uh, why? And God gives them very specific instructions. He says, no, seriously, camp in front of this place, between this place and the sea, in front of this city. Hey, make sure that you're facing the city and that your back is to the sea. That's weird. All these non-English words, by the way, the pi-hahirath and migdol and all this stuff, we're not sure exactly what those mean, but they describe either cities, uh, maybe forts, geographical kind of features of the area. Regardless of what they mean, we know for sure God told them to go backwards um, and, and set up shop with their, with their backs to the sea looking at a city or an area that probably belonged to Egypt, you know, this nation that God sort of just decimated, okay? So he wants them to stay there and then just kind of chill, I guess. So you could you could imagine, you know, if you were an Israelite, if you're in this situation, you're starting to get a little antsy. It's like, you know, this is good, but like, really, I would, I would like to be going, you know? Um, and not only that, but then when God says... No, definitely, you are going to see Pharaoh again. The Egyptians are coming for you, and they're going to find you, and I'm going to do something big. It's like, gee, that sounds great, but you know, really, I, I cannot overemphasize. I would like to be leaving, please. But listen to what God says. I'm going to get glory over them, and you will know, they will know that I am the Lord. So the, the text mentions this one, this one other thing that's kind of tricky. It mentions that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. So what, is, what does that mean exactly? Um, that in this process of Pharaoh's thoughts and feelings toward God and his people becoming more unfavorable, prideful, and cruel, God actually plays a part. Now, on the front side, we have to acknowledge, this is like one, one little phrase that um, that honestly has a little bit of mystery to it. We're not sure exactly what it means, but it can prompt a lot of questions. Um, Could God be mean, even malicious? Is God unjust? No, I don't think that he is. Um, but, But like Brian talked about, Um, This can be kind of hard for us to swallow and and hard for us to hear and deal with. So one thing we we have to know is we have to approach the scripture with humility, like we talked about last week. We have to submit ourselves before God and say, God, frankly, I I don't understand what's going on here, but um, I I need you to teach me. So unpacking this topic of of God hardening Pharaoh's heart could uh, be a sermon in its own right. But like, since it's here, I want to be faithful to address it and just give you a few quick thoughts. If you're still curious um, after we talk about it, I'd love to talk with you more after. Um, You can talk with a leader about it, or you can even process together in groups. Um, But a a few quick thoughts that I think will give us a a good perspective on it. One, God is not doing something to Pharaoh that Pharaoh did not already do to himself. Uh, It's not as if God uh, turned Pharaoh away from him against Pharaoh's will. If God had done nothing, Pharaoh's actions were already in line with Pharaoh's own heart and character and desires. Two, if we assume Pharaoh was innocent before God hardens Pharaoh's heart, we're actually assuming wrongly. Um, We know that what the Bible says is that people start with the sinful nature. And it's God's work um, to come in and uh, and to change our hearts, to, to help us with righteousness through his grace and his work in our lives. Three, all of God's actions, hear this, all of God's actions are for his glory and our good, for his glory and our good. As creator, God has rights over his creation, and that that includes us, but God doesn't use these rights maliciously. However, he does do things that we don't understand yet for the good of his people. So I, I want you to hear that. And all told, if if God hardened Pharaoh's heart, here's kind of what we can take away, and I think what the scripture wants us to actually come away with. One, it means that God has the complete ability to save his people. God is able. He's able and willing to save his people. Secondly, if God hardened Pharaoh's heart, he can soften hearts. And isn't, isn't that our prayer? Isn't that always our prayer for ourselves and the people around us? Man, God, soften my heart so I can learn more about you, so I can know you better, so I can, I can be more in line with you and more in love with you. God, soften the hearts of my friends, uh, my family that don't know you, um, so, so they can understand what your word says and they can enter into the greatest relationship that a human can have. God can soften hearts. And we can pray along with uh, the, the Father in the, in the Gospels, Lord, help my unbelief. God can soften hearts. So the Israelites are, are faithfully following the Lord. They're waiting where, they, where God told them to wait. Meanwhile, what about Pharaoh in Egypt? Well, let's go back to the scripture. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them. Encamped at the sea by Pi Hahirath in front of Baal Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. So, as God is enacting his baffling plan, Pharaoh has a plan too. And Pharaoh's plan is self exaltation. His decision made to oppose God and his people to the end, he readies weapons of war. So this idea of chariots may not mean a a ton to us. It may just be kind of a thing that we see in in Gladiator. But um, in in this context, the the chariot is a technological marvel. It is a state-of-the-art weapon of war. The design has been improved by the Egyptians over time to be lighter, faster, and more durable than the people around them. They're ornately decorated, along with the horses which pulled them, colors of turquoise, of coral, and gold. Chosen chariots, the Bible says, likely manned by nobles, aristocrats, who paid with their own money to have these chariots built and manned. They had two people who ran them, one to to ride the horse and the other atop um, an archer. And when they ran out of arrows, short spears, to attack their foes. Chariots could even literally run people over. There were 600 of these, each manned by the most important Egyptians and led by Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh's own chariot had sort of this like mythic reputation. It was luxuriously and ornately decorated even more than the others, and it actually was ascribed protection um, by Egyptian gods for different areas of the chariot. All this, 600 chariots and Pharaoh himself, besides unnumbered foot soldiers and horsemen. Look, this was the full might and fury of the greatest empire to date in the world. Coming down on this group of people that the Bible says they were, they were dressed for war, but likely they hadn't seen a day of battle in their lives. You can imagine them cresting the hill and the people looking and here come the Egyptians. But it's kind of interesting. So the, the chariots are supposed to inspire this awe and reflect majesty. We're supposed to be in awe of this. When the Bible mentions them, usually, honestly, it's not very impressed. You can you can take a look the, the next time you're reading the scripture. When the Bible mentions chariots, it's usually to say that humans have placed their trust in a power that can't save. So hang on to that for later. We'll see what happens. But Pharaoh's plan is self-exaltation. He's been embarrassed by his slaves, and he's going to impose the fullness of his will and majesty, the nation of Egypt, upon the people of Israel and take back what's his. I'm going to stop here for a second. Have we been here before? Have you ever gotten to a place where you've said, you know what, I'm done giving and deferring and serving and blessing other people. It is time for me to get mine. I'm gonna do what I want. No one's actions or feelings are gonna stop me. I'm going to assert my will and I'm gonna get what I want. Have you ever been there? I know that I have and it's the total opposite of the humble attitude that Christ models for us. At every turn, Christ actually foregoes, puts aside rights that he has. See, he have the right to be worshiped? He lets people mistreat him and challenge him and mock him Does he have the right to splendor and majesty, riches? He's homeless, and he relies on the generosity of others to survive. Is he tempted? He clings to God, and he actually endures discomfort. James even tells us that man's anger is not the righteousness that God requires. Why? Because so often it's focused on our own glory, our own stuff, and not God's glory. When we assert our will and dominance, we dishonor God and misplace the passion that he's given us. So maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, well, that's not really me. I'm not like the, the brash, assertive type. Um, have you ever made that decision in your heart? It, it doesn't have to be the situation where I just like lash out and, you know, destroy the people around me, right, with with my frustration. But when I make that decision in my heart that no, I know I'm supposed to look out for other people, and I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do what serves me. I'm going to do what's convenient for me. I'm going to sleep in. I'm, I'm going to eat the food that I want. I'm going to do nothing. I'm going to do what serves me. Now, don't get me wrong, right? There's nothing wrong with rest. There's nothing wrong with doing things that, that you like. But again, when we assert our will in this kind of dominant, rebellious way, we dishonor God, and we misplace our passion. And that is what Pharaoh is doing here. So let's go back to the, the Israelites here. Imagine this scene meeting our apprehensive Israelites. So they're waiting. They've gone backwards already. They don't really know why they're waiting. This is kind of a, kind of a scary situation to be in. The seat of their back, an Egyptian border town in front of them. And first comes the sound of hoofbeats, shouts, clattering metal. Then you see dust start to kick up the furious bobbing of horsemen on horses and the glint of chariots and warrior garb. Thousands of men with bloodshot, furious eyes and hard hearts. Because remember, there was not one house in Egypt without someone dead. The Israelites were afraid, and rightly so. Now, I know, like, we've just been doing this whole epic thing and kind of, like, amping up this story, but what comes next, honestly, is just, it's dumbfounding to me. I I can't keep going with that. So, despite their very justified fear, the Israelites follow that up. They respond with their own plan, which is self-delusion. Listen, listen to what they say. It's, it's ridiculous, honestly. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. Get that. Totally understand that. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it not because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. What? (laughs) So it's one thing to be afraid. But listen to what they say. The complete rejection of God's plan for them. Backed up with statements that are completely out of touch with reality. Irreverence and disrespect toward God. Well, if you wanted to kill us, you could have just left us in Egypt. Criticism of God's plan. God, your plan is straight up bad. Affirmation of the complete opposite of God's plan. Dude, didn't we tell you we don't want you, the one true God, and your promised land? We want awesome servitude in this foreign land that's really good. What? I mean, it's, it's, only, it's comical, right? But isn't that the very relationship that we as people can have with sin? When we pursue sin, we assume, whether we say it or not, that we know better than God. God, not only is your plan not good for me, but the very opposite of it, the death and misery that you're trying to save me out of is exactly what I want. It seems ridiculous until we realize that we do the very same thing. God, you want me to be a hard worker, but I don't think your plan is very good. I'd rather practice laziness and wonder why I'm bored, depressed, unsatisfied. God, you want me to show radical love to people I don't agree with, but I don't think your plan is very good. I'd rather be abrasive with my beliefs and wonder why people won't talk to me about Jesus. Jesus. God, you want me to spend time with you in prayer and in your word, but I don't think your plan is very good. I'd rather distract myself with a thousand other things and wonder why life seems out of balance and pointless. These are delusions right out of my stupid playbook, by the way. So this is, this is how the Israelites respond um, to danger and often how we respond as well. But look at how good God is. What response might you respect or might you expect from God? Or if you were God? What response might you give? What response does this kind of disrespect and rejection deserve? Punishment? Abandonment. Okay, cool. That's the way you feel. I'm done with you guys. I'll go choose a new people. I'm God. But look what he does instead. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord will fight for you. Child of God, that is the Lord's response to us. The Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God saw fit to take the penalty of sin while we were still in the middle of sinning. What a God. There's no sin that can overpower God's grace. This, this statement that God makes is not only for the Israelites, but it's for the Christian. God fights for us. Now, you might have even heard it in what I said a second ago. Um, the, the temptation is to, to see how kind of dumb, frankly, the Israelites are and then identify ourselves with them. Oh, we make those same mistakes. And then overemphasize our brokenness. Man, ugh, woe is me. You know, how dumb am I? I do all of, the, all of these stupid things, right? But don't miss this. If we are going to identify with the brokenness of the Israelites, we need to identify with their status in God's eyes. If, if you're a Christian, if you follow Christ this morning, your status, yes, you're broken. Yes, you're fighting with sin. Chosen. Spiritual sons of the one true God. Heirs of the promises that he's made. Though we often make mistakes, being controlled by sin is past tense for the Christian. Look at what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6.11. Paul lays out all of these different like sinful lifestyles and types of of sinners and he says don't you know these people won't inherit the kingdom of god and such were some of you you were those people but you were washed you were sanctified You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Look, you were those people, but if you've trusted in Jesus, you are not those people anymore. You don't have to be that anymore. God did something for you that you couldn't do for yourself. So let's keep going. God continues to pour out this love. He continues to choose his people, even though in this moment they didn't choose him. The Lord says to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. God sees fit to continue to save his people. And that's good news for us today. If God sees fit to continue to save them, he sees fit to continue to save people today, to guide us, to draw us into relationship with him. And he continues to enact his crazy plan, this plan that still doesn't make sense. Turn around, cross the sea. Let's go back to the scripture and finish it out. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt, the armies of Egypt, and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without coming one near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord and the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw them into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, "'Let us flee from before Israel, "'for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians.' "'Then the Lord said to Moses, "'Stretch out your hand over the sea, "'that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, "'upon their chariots and upon their horsemen.' "'So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, "'and the sea returned to its normal course, "'which had previously been a dry ground "'when the morning appeared.' And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. All of the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. God's seeming foolishness, what was a a baffling plan with no seeming direction, now bears itself out. God acts. The pillar of cloud that was leading them moves from the front and stands between them and their enemies. The cowering Israelites that the Egyptians saw were replaced with darkness and the fog of war. Moses raises his staff and God pushes back a whole sea. And Bible, the Bible says that the ground underneath was dry. Both the Israelites and the Egyptians set foot and marched on a seabed. All through the night. Let's not overlook this. God moved the waters for his purposes, for his people, because he wanted to, because he could. In the morning, God acts. He throws the Egyptian army into a panic. Their chariots, their technological superiority begins to falter and fail. Once again, they found themselves in the midst of Israel's warrior king. And they say, We need to get the heck out of here right now. Because we know what happens when God shows up. But it was too late. The last Israelite steps onto the opposite shore. And torrents of water come crashing back down, refilling the sea. The Egyptians are crushed. Their beautiful weapons of war, the pride of Pharaoh, broken splinters, wood, metal bits. Look at the result of all this. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. God's plan was baffling to his people. But if you were paying attention, he accomplished exactly what he set out to do. Twice God tells his people why he's doing what he's doing, which is not always a luxury we get, by the way. I will get glory over the Egyptians' earthly things, their chariots, their horsemen, their stuff, and everyone will know that I am God. He says that at least twice. Here, the Egyptians are defeated, the chariots destroyed. The Israelites aren't afraid in the same way anymore. Before, they were just plain afraid because there was a, there was a greater power who wanted death for them. They were afraid. Now, yeah, they're, they're afraid of the Lord's power, frankly, but they honor him, they revere him because God is different. God is good. He uses his power to love his people, to discipline his people, to lead them and protect them. God has proven himself. He's shown what it looks like to use great power for good. God's baffling plan lifts our eyes off of ourselves and onto God's glory. The Bible says that the Israelites feared the Lord and they believed in him and they believed his servant, Moses. Do we have a view of God like that? You know, We, we know that God is our father, that, that God loves us, but do we have a view of God that says, God, you are, not only do you love us, but you love us from a place of power and majesty and ability. God, you, you are able to work out your plans and when they don't make sense, To us, you are worth following. Because he proves it. He proved it in the Exodus story, and he proves it to us as we walk with Jesus. And again, I just want to remind you that this story of Exodus is moving toward a climactic event beyond itself. God raised up the people of Israel because he was going to provide a savior from them. Because every human's problem. Your problem and my problem is bigger even than being oppressed in this physical world. We all are actually enslaved, both physically and spiritually, by sin if we don't know Jesus. What this means is that naturally, naturally we do things that oppose God, thinking that they're going to elevate us as rulers in our own lives, that they're going to flourish us and they're going to make us rulers in our lives. What we don't see, though, is that these acts actually leave us in chains rather than freeing us. They separate us from God. They make us objects of his judgment. We see that we don't want to be objects of God's judgment. This sin breaks relationships with other people, brings all kinds of physical, uh, worldly consequences that we don't want. We think it's going to bring life. It brings death. But just like God chose Israel They didn't do anything. He chose them and He made a way for them. He said, Water, no big deal. It's out of the way. He made a way for them. He has made a way for people, you and I, to return to Him, to lay down our crowns, to get off our thrones, and to give those up to their rightful owner. Jesus was crucified to take away the punishment that our acts of rebellion deserve. With those debts paid by Jesus, we're able to turn away from our, our self-serving ways, our, our self-exaltation, um, our, our, our self-delusion. We're able to turn away from those and submit to God, who, as we see, knows better than us and has a better plan. His plan brings about his glory, but his glory also brings about our good. It's not like us. When, when we glorify ourselves, we feel good and we might look good, but nobody else benefits, and It's temporary. God's glory shows how good he truly is, and it actually brings about good for his people. Instead of our sinful record, we have Jesus, spotless one. God sees perfection, even as we still fight with sin. We're able to be an in intimate relationship with God because of what he's done for us. He did all that for his glory, and his glory means our good. And so my hope and prayer is... That you would do that this morning, that you would be able to lift your eyes off of your own stuff, whatever it is, and be able to set your eyes on Jesus in his glory, maybe even for the first time this morning. So um, I'm going to pray and I'm going to invite the band up here and we're going to we're going to continue to worship. But I would I would challenge you to think that let's, along with the people um, of the scriptures, let's take our eyes off of ourselves and rest them on the glory of God through Jesus.